Well, go ahead and grab a seat. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. You see that uh, if you do that, you'll see that the top, you'll, the, the topic today is Jesus and politics. And, and the truth is that, that we love Jesus, and politics is a reality in the news, in our country. So today we're going to have a grace-filled discussion, several thoughts that will at some point challenge, I'm sure all of us, uh, offend maybe many of us, either in what gets said or what doesn't get said. And, and you do know this, if you've been around Overlake for a while, that we have worked hard to build a culture of grace here at Overlake, so I invoke that culture today in terms of your grace extended towards me. Um, now, I do want to let you know that, that putting this message on the docket, it seemed like a great idea back in 2015 when we prayerfully put together our preaching schedule, and, uh, and yet as it got closer and closer and the election cycle got more and more crazy, it seemed a bit more of a daunting task. Um, so here, here's what I want to do. I want, I, I, as we prayed over it and as I kind of just really sensed the, how this message was coming together, it's called Jesus and Politics, but really a better title might be something like how we collectively win in this election season. But even that sounds a little bit political, and so you just need to hear me say on the front end, this is, uh, it's, it's an intentionally non-political message about Jesus and politics. And if, if we're going to challenge ourselves, what do we need in order to win in this season, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum? There are a few things to keep in mind. So these, these are the truths I want to challenge you with. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is this. Keep in mind that it, it is much more important to make a difference with your life rather than making a point. It's easier to make a point, but it's much, much more important to make a difference. And I would even go one step further. When we are in a season where we're choosing a leader of our nation, it's a good time for us to examine our own leadership. We're taking a look at who's going to be the person to, to ascend, you know, in the presidency, it's a good time to think, well, what kind of person am I in this season of my life? And this is the challenge. The challenge is that we would choose to make a difference. And so let me just tell you, uh, when it comes to making a point, just be real clear, making offhand verbal comments benefits no one. Random political social media posts benefit no one. Everyone in this season is taking sides, and I would just tell you, everyone seems to want Pastor Mike on their side. Uh, and, and, and this is true regardless of political persuasion or even non-persuasion. It just seems like it is impossible to enter into this discussion without people getting on sides. So at the front end of this, let me just tell you that I am not interested in convincing you which side you need to be on. I do want to challenge you to make your side better, okay? And here's, here's a statistic I found, a, a study that was done. In 2006, Professor Nyhan of Dartmouth and partner Reifler of Georgia State University found that if you take a group of people with a particular political leaning and show them facts that contradict that political posture, most people will not believe those facts that collide with their political bent. 
And this is true regardless of where they are, right or left, neither side is open to facts. Both sides are averse to information that pushes against their preconceived political narratives. And so we recognize that in today's culture, nobody really wants dialogue. And that Facebook post that you are tempted to make will absolutely convince no one, okay? And in fact, I'm going to argue that it's counterproductive. Why? Because it's more important to make a difference than it is to make a point. And sometimes making a point might prevent you from making a difference. You might want to write down a couple more truths just kind of in the notes somewhere. The first is this. Critics make points, but leaders make a difference. Critics make points, but leaders make a difference in their world. And Overlake, we've talked about this again and again and again. We want to be a church that actually makes a difference. And so sometimes we choose to self-edit. Sometimes we choose not to make a point or to keep our point to ourselves in order that, so that we have an avenue to make a difference. The next truth you might want to write down. Saying something is not the same thing as doing something. Saying something is not the same thing as doing something. Actions will always speak louder than words. Let me give you an example. Rebuking the evil of a dirty dish is not the same thing as doing the dishes. (laughs) Saying that you'll pray for someone is not the same thing as actually praying for them. Telling someone good luck with your move is not the same thing as showing up and helping them load the truck. See, there's a difference. And and I want to just, so you know, saying something is not the same thing as doing something. It's always more important to actually do something to make a difference. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 say, Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. That's such a powerful verse. That we are to steward our words. We're to make sure that we choose our words, that we choose the things that we say wisely so that it's attractive and winsome and so that we can make the most of every opportunity. As we live in this culture, as we live in this fallen world, God wants us to be able to influence other people. And we do that not by making points, but by making a difference. If we really care, we're going to do what's, what it's going to take to influence other lives. And by the way, Jesus was incredible at this. He touched an unclean leper. That was, that was so taboo in his day. But yet he touched an unclean leper, and he changed that man's life while at the same time making a point that Jesus is the great healer and that he is for those on the margins of society. The very next thing that Jesus does, he heals the servant of a Roman captain. He changed that servant's life, and he made a point that Jesus loves and cares and serves even those we we see as enemies. So did Jesus ever make a point? Of course he did. But how did he do it? He did it by making a difference, by changing lives. Making a difference is always better than making a point. And by the way, the the great news is we occasionally see people set aside theological or cultural or political views in order to make a difference. Real leaders are willing to lay aside their points and walk across the aisle to get things done. 
And when you work alongside someone, they become more human. You begin to understand their perspective a little bit more, and you can accomplish some incredible things. A good example happened a few years ago when Bill Clinton and George W. Bush worked together to build a foundation that brought immediate and long-term relief after Haiti had suffered its devastating earthquake. So it usually takes something catastrophic in order for people to put down their microphones and to pick up their work gloves and get something done. But let's not worry about who gets the credit. Let's just make a difference. Because when that happens, it's so beautiful. And in fact, that is our calling. In 1 Peter 4.10, it says, As each, each one of us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we've all been given gifts. We've, we've all been called to steward God's grace and then to serve others, to make a difference in this world. Several ways to do that here at Overlake, several opportunities to get our hands dirty in ministry or to step across ethnic lines and develop friendships, to get in trenches and to care for refugees. I, I would encourage you to stop by our Serve the World table in the hallway. That's an a powerful thing for us to keep in mind. It's more important to make a difference than it is to make a point. Now, the next thing we need to embrace is this. We are called to live fearless and joyful. Fearless, joyful lives. This is our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And I would say of all people, Jesus followers need to live fearless. Because our confidence is not ultimately in the government it's not ultimately in the economy. It's not even in this world. Our confidence is in Jesus. Our courage and our joy come from him. I'll tell you a story. How many of you have ever thought how you would confront a bear? You ever, ever asked yourself that question? Some, some of you have. That's really interesting because I, I never did and until I confronted a bear. And, and this is a true story. It was, uh, it was maybe like 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. My dog, Scout, was out in the front yard barking his head off. And, and Scout's not much of a barker. He can bark a little bit and, you know, just enough to make him seem tough. But, but he was going crazy, just foaming at the mouth, just barking like his head was, and, and just every muscle in his body was going into his bark, and, and so I, I kind of saunter out on the front porch, and I'm like, hey, Scout, hush, knock it off, what are you barking at? And as I was scolding my dog through the bushes at the side of my house, not further from me than this piano is behind me, a bear comes crashing into my yard. On his hind legs, he's taller than me, broader than me, right? Just comes crashing in and just stops and looks at me. Now, a little bit later, a couple months later, the, the you know, animal services in our neck of the woods, they actually put him to sleep and moved him out into the woods. And, and so they reported he weighed over 400 pounds. So this was, a, this was not a small little, oh, look at the little teddy bear. This was like, ah! And so I did exactly what you would do. I, I screamed. <laughs> and then I whirled around, and I was just going to pick up anything that was on my front porch as like a little bit of a weapon or something. And, and so I just scooped up my son's lacrosse stick. 
And so I, I grabbed the stick and I turn around and the bear was gone. It was afraid of me. My family was inside Saturday morning. They heard me yell. They come running out, Dad, what's up, what's up? And I'm like, bear. Right there. And so they looked, and they, you know, they, it took about 30 seconds for the mocking to begin. <laughs> what are you doing with a lacrosse stick? What, are you going to beat it up? Dad, that lacrosse stick is like a toothpick for the bear, just to clean his teeth after he eats your head, you know? But I want to be honest with you, I felt so brave. I felt fear. I chased that bear away. I protected my kinfolk. <laughs> now, here's the deal. God wants his children to feel that brave all the time. Do you, do you realize, after you face a bear, you know, there are other things that you're a little bit afraid of. They're just not that fearful anymore. Get a bad email. Bah, I faced a bear today. <laughs> budget concerns. What's what budget? I, I, I chased a bear away, you know. And God wants his children to feel like that all the time. All the time. Look what the scripture says in Psalm 112. I love this passage. I actually have memorized this passage because it's so encouraging to me. Those who live righteous will be long remembered. You want to live a, a legacy. You want to leave a legacy behind you. This is how you do it. Those who live righteous will be long remembered. They do not fear bad news they confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. Face your foes triumphantly. You, you can face bears triumphantly. And, and you could do this. Why? Because your confidence is not in yourself. Your confidence is not in the government or the economy or the bank account. It's in Jesus. It's in the Lord. And not only that, are we to live confident, are we to live courageous lives, but then the, the scripture tells us many times that, that we're to be joyful. And that's what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. In fact, that's what he says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, 16, he says, be joyful always. You're looking to memorize a verse, I would start right there. Mostly because there's three words in it. Be joyful always. It's a great reminder that this is what we are to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And right now, there is so much fear and misery in our culture that the world is actually looking for examples of joy and of courage. The world's hungry to see this. You know, Peter writes that we, Jesus followers, are to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. In other words, when people ask us, hey, why are you so courageous in the face of the, everything we're facing? Or why are you so joy-filled, you know, even though all this stuff's going on? We're supposed to be able to give an answer. Our hope is in Jesus. But the problem is nobody's asking Christians that question. Because Christians are just as sour and as scared as everybody else in our culture. See, this is so important for us to get that we would live courageous lives, we'd live fearless, that we'd live joyful, that we would communicate that our hope is in Jesus. Our confidence is in Christ. I found this quote from Tommy Newberry. It says, it is the greatest attitude in the world. Few human assets are as attractive as this particular attitude when it is pure and undiluted. 
When you spot individuals exhibiting this mindset, you observe that something is quite different about them. Hard to rattle. They're not merely cheerful on the outside. They're peaceful on the inside. Despite their circumstances, they actively appreciate their blessings and remain madly in love with life during good times and bad. Organically grown, this attitude is established with a decision, nurtured with right thoughts, and time released to the world at large. It will be fiercely tested on the battlefield of life, but fully developed, it cannot be taken away. What is this attitude? It is joy. It's joy. And friends, at the end of the day, we have to remember that our confidence and our joy cannot be taken away because they are not founded in anything in this world. It's founded in Jesus himself, in our risen and victorious Lord and Savior. That's where we have our joy. That's where we have our confidence. And so we're to live fearless and joyful. We're to make a difference in this world. The next challenge is we're to care for the hurting. We're to care for the hurting. And if you've been around Overlake for any length of time, you know that we cycle back to this concept again and again and again. Compassion for the Jesus follower is not optional. Compassion is not optional. Now, there are 10,000 ways that we might choose to show and to communicate compassion, and those might be different, but compassion is not optional. As we grow in our faith, our hearts will break with the things that break the heart of Jesus. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We are to care for the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee. And if we just tell them, be warm and well-fed, but we don't lift a finger to help them, then we're not really communicating our faith. You see, James writes this. He says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. We need to care for the hurting in our world. Evan Hill, many of you might know him. He's a graduate of our student ministries. He's a regular blogger online with the Seattle Seahawks community called Field Goals. And he wrote this and posted. I asked him if I could share it, and and he said yes. He writes, in the aftermath of several tragedies over the last few months, I've noticed that many of my Christian friends have consistently posted political hot takes in response to these events. If you're a Christian and thinking about addressing a social tragedy in this day and age, please consider the following points of reflection before posting on any form of social media. And these are all things I have to constantly remind myself of. So again, we all have to be self-reflective in this. Number one, Jesus calls us to mourn with the brokenhearted. Am I mourning with and showing compassion toward the brokenhearted? Number two, do I consistently side with the oppressed or the oppressor? Number three, is my goal to defend a political agenda or to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Four, is my only form of activism ranting on social media? Or do I continually make an effort to advocate for peace and change in my community? These are powerful. And then he says, the world is watching. If we truly know the heart of Jesus, the church will be on the front lines defending the oppressed. On the other hand, if Christians continue to post political hot takes that lack compassion, care, and overall human decency, are we really allowed to wonder why our church pews are empty? That's powerful. See, choosing to care, maybe it starts with what we share or don't share on social media, but it has to spill over into our lives. 
It has to be an expression of the way in which we love and follow Jesus himself. You know, the first church, the first church was very interesting, and I, I love learning about the way in which they approached different things, because obviously the first church existed in a really hostile political environment. In fact, one of the issues that faced the first church was a form of late-term abortion. It was so late that the child was actually delivered, and then they would take the child out to the trash heap, and they would throw the unwanted child uh, out uh, literally in the dump to die of exposure. This is a process known as infanticide. And, and, it, and it bothered those first church believers. It, it, it bothered those early Jesus followers because of the reality that every single human being is, is crafted in the image of God himself. And therefore, there's the sanctity of life. And, and so what the first church decided to do is they decided not to get political at all. They decided not to address it in terms of politics or legislation. All they chose to do was to address the actual issue. And so they, they would go then to these places in the city where these babies were left to die. And they would bring them into their home. And they would adopt these children, raise them as their sons and daughters. And then the first church started realizing that, that one of the primary causes for this infanticide was these young mothers in poverty and hopeless, and they, they had no hope for their own lives, let alone their child's life. And so, so the first church would invite these young women into their communities, and they would begin to care for these young women, and they would begin to introduce them to a life of hope with Jesus Christ. And, and by doing so, they would, they would kind of affect that thing that was happening of infanticide. And, and you know what was interesting is it actually raised the consciousness of the Roman culture. And then sooner or later, the, the emperor actually signed into law uh, the legislation that outlawed infanticide throughout the entire, the entire um, country, right? The entire uh, expanse of Rome. Why? Because, not because the, the, the first believers got political. It's because the first believers got busy. It's because the first believers decided, oh, we're going to care for the hurting. We're, we're actually going to let our lives be impacted by this. And, and we're going to extend the hands and feet of Jesus in order to make a difference. And so that's why it all ties together, right? The, the joy and the courage and the care for the hurting and the make a difference with our lives. Why? It's because we want to be like that. This is the church we want to be. The next challenge I want to bring is that we have to reckon our identity in Jesus. We, we have to reckon our identity in Jesus. We have, to, we have to remember that our citizenry is in his kingdom. Right? Our, that, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the book of Acts, you read through the letters, you, you will see that we get a fairly non-opinionated view of who is in political power. Now, they are mentioned for sure, but on the periphery. The, the real action is what's happening in hearts. It's what God is doing through his church. You realize the apostle Paul was fearless, and yet he never delved into politics. He just talked about Jesus. You do realize that we have accounts, several accounts, of when Paul had an opportunity to speak to prominent political figures, to, to governors, to those in authority, ultimately to the emperor himself. 
And, and what we have recorded, it, Paul never used those opportunities to talk politics or legislation. He only talked about Jesus. He only presented Jesus. He only invited people to respond to Jesus. And remember, this is when Nero is literally burning Christians alive to illuminate his garden parties. You would have thought Paul would have mentioned that, that Paul would have raised an uproar around that, but instead he simply lived fearless and joyful, and he urges us to do the same. You see, the most free and joyful Christian in the first century was Paul in a jail cell waiting to be executed. For him, it was not about politics or legislation. He knew that he was a member of the Jewish community and he was a citizen of Rome, but his identity was as a child of the king of the universe and his true citizenship was in heaven. You know, I'm proud to be an American, but I am humbled to be a child of God. And there's a difference. My son Doozy is an American citizen and we celebrate that. We also celebrate his South African Zulu heritage. And we celebrate the fact that God has formed our family together and allowed us to live as a family here in the States. You know, friends, I, I love our country. I, I, I think there's so many great things about America as a nation with its opportunities and its freedoms. And it's not perfect. But I do want you to hear that America is only one nation. And we are part of God's kingdom, which includes every tongue and every tribe and every nation united in Jesus Christ. See, I have to say this clearly, and you might want to write this down. You might want to kind of process it a little bit. You might Because it has implications. It'll reverberate around in the cavern of your skull. Your skull's not a cavern. No, I'm sorry. I heard it, and, but it was... But, but you have to just hear this, that... America first is not a kingdom value. Now, it's a political value, but it's not a kingdom value. The choice to kill the unborn is not a kingdom value. It's a political value, but it's not a kingdom value. Hating our enemies is not a kingdom value. Treating anyone... Anyone, anywhere, regardless of past, regardless of country of origin, regardless of color of skin, treating anyone, anywhere as less than a brother or sister made in the image of God for whom Jesus died on the cross to redeem anyone less than that is not a kingdom value. Now, it might be a political value, and that's where I want you to see the tension in all this because I don't care where your political platform is, so much of the political platform doesn't even come close to kingdom value, no matter where you are. And, and so we have to realize that. that that's what I, I want you to kind of sense the tension in this. But, but what we do is we convince ourselves that God is on our side, that God thinks exactly like we think about whatever issue that we find particularly compelling. And we have to remember, God's not on our side. We're invited to be on his. There's a great passage of scripture, and I'll read it to you real quick. It's from Joshua. Joshua, by the way, if you remember, Joshua was the leader of God's people, the Israelites. And Moses had led them for many years. Now Joshua had taken over from Moses, and he was literally following God into the promised land. 
And this is before the Battle of Jericho, which many of you may know that God was absolutely a part of that Battle of Jericho as they entered into the Promised Land. And so Joshua, as the leader of God's people, following God into God's Promised Land, he naturally would have assumed that the angel of God would be on his side. But note, that's not exactly what we read. It says this in Joshua 5.13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho... He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. You see, when it comes to Jesus, we might be tempted to ask, Jesus, are you for us or are you for them? And I am convinced that he would answer neither. But as commander of the Lord's army, I am present with you. I'm here. You see, we get to be on his team. Our allegiance has to be first to Jesus. Our our identity has to be Jesus first. Our first love must be Jesus. The uh, the source of our confidence and our joy. Look what Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. You might want to underline that phrase. Counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Now, that is an incredible passage. So I want you to think about it for a moment. He says, next to this infinite, surpassing value I have in being connected to the Lord of the universe, the person of Jesus Christ, who has forgiven me, he has washed me, he has cleansed me, he has set me on a new road. I now have this joy, I now have this courage, I have this relationship of love, I have this passion for life and for eternity. Next to the surpassing value of being his, I count everything else as trash. Now that word, by the way, in the Greek is the word skubalon. Scubalon. uh, Many of you, you already knew that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Scubalon is a a, a word choice that Paul uses intentionally. It does mean trash or rubbish or garbage, but it's not a very nice word. It's a PG-13 word. It's a word we wouldn't let our kids say, right? No, no, honey, that's a a bad word. Like, Like we'd say, oh, that's not good. And the reason why Paul uses it is because he wants it to be very, very clear. Everything else is trash. It's scubalon next to being with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Can you say that? Can I? Do we believe that? Is it true for us that there's nothing else in this world that I long for like I long to be intimate with Jesus? That what dominates my thinking, it's not the, the current news cycle, it's not the latest gaffe that my political opponent has, you know, goes through and I take delight in that. Or Like, like what, are, what are we stewing on? What, what are we desiring? We're driving down the road. What's, what's occupying our thoughts? Is it I want to honor Jesus more? 
And I want to point more people to Jesus. Is, is it that I, I love you, Lord, and I, I want my whole life to reflect that kind of a praise? Is everything else scubalon? Or is there still a lot of value over here for us? It's a challenge, right? It's a challenge that our identity needs to be in Christ. Here's another study. 2007 study out of Baylor University found that people who read the Bible consistently are more likely to be believers in the sanctity of all life across the spectrum, more likely to be against abortion and the death penalty, and for the poor and the marginalized. Well, you'll notice that this lines up with no political party, which is exactly why we need beautiful believers in all parts of the political spectrum in order to call their own party into a higher plane and make a difference where they have a voice. And the last challenge that I want to bring, maybe the toughest of all, is that we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders. The New Testament tells us this a couple of times, how we are to respond to those who are in authority over us, how we are to position ourselves no matter who those in governance are. In 1 Peter 2.17, we are told to honor the emperor. And so in our day today, we don't have an emperor, we have a president. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 2, he says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. So you might want to just underline those, those phrases, right, that Paul actually, he kind of describes the kind of prayer we're to go into. We're to ask God to help them. We're to intercede on their behalf. We're to give thanks for them, for all who are in authority, for the king, for the president. Now, Paul and Peter wrote these words when a malevolent dictator was in charge. He says, honor them. Pray for them. Not pray against them. Pray for them. Ask God to help them give thanks for them. So Overlake, I want us to start praying. Not just pray for the person that you hope will become president, but pray for those running for president because one of them will be president. Pray that God will fill them with wisdom, that God will guide them, that God will bless them. Pray that starting now, the Holy Spirit will be with them and their hearts will be humble and that they will care about the marginalized and the poor, and they will care about life across the spectrum, that they will be sensitive to the things of God. And I would encourage you especially to pray for the candidate that you can't stand, because chances are good there's at least one that you cannot stand right now. <laughs> Do this for the sake of your own heart. And obviously, you've already noticed this, but I'm, I'm not here saying vote this way or vote this way or don't vote. You need to ask Jesus and you need to follow his prompting. But I do want to tell you this, and I hope that it brings you peace. You know, many people feel that this time around, in this election, that we only have horrible choices. That, that in this election, especially, we only have horrible candidates. So it might help for us to just do a broad stroke in reality check, and, and that's this. In our American history, we've had liars and alcoholics and sex addicts in the White House. We've had people who owned other human beings as property. Slave owners who fathered children with their female slaves. 
We need to get over our narcissism that amplifies everything so crazily and negatively in our culture today. And we need to get over the nostalgia that pretends that it used to be so much better back in the day. You see, every single time we've had a president, they've been deeply flawed. We just didn't know how shallow or selfish they were because they hadn't invented Twitter yet. <laughs> this is why it's God's will for us to pray for all leaders, right? Leaders have always been a mess. God has always known they've been a mess. So please take a deep breath. Pray for Hillary. Pray for Trump. Pray for Gary. What's his name? <laughs> Romans 13.1 says this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You know what that means? That means that God is not up in heaven wringing his hands about who the next president's going to be. He, he, he knows. He wasn't up in, up in heaven wringing his hands about Nero or about all those Roman emperors that, that were really just so chaotic. He, no. And, and by the way, let me give another broad stroke. You know, there actually have been incredibly humble Christ followers in the White House. But it's no good guarantee of how they'll perform as president. You know, Jimmy Carter... Since his presidency, Jimmy Carter, has, he's lived this incredible life as a humanitarian. He's a humble, servant-oriented, Christ follower. He still teaches Sunday school every single week. And yet, today, even though he might be almost universally admired, when he left the White House, he was almost universally maligned. So just a little perspective for us to have. And as we land this plane... I. I'm not so sure what's more important to Jesus, what the president does for the next four years or what you do. I'm not so sure what's more important to Jesus, who the next president is for the next four years or who you are. In fact, even as I was writing that in my notes this week and kind of mulling that over, I really felt God kind of show up and said, Mike, you know, it. You know the answer to that. The answer is Jesus cares exactly the same amount about who you are as he does who the next president is. And he cares exactly the same amount because he cares perfectly about you. Just like he cares perfectly about every single human being on planet Earth. Just like he cares perfectly about the next president. And, and it's important for us to ask this question. What's more important in God's view, is, is a soul more important or is the government more important or a nation more important or a, an institution more important? And you just have to remember that from God's perspective that a nation or a government or an institution, the lifespan of these things is like a nanosecond compared to the lifespan of your soul. So God cares infinitely more about the heart. He cares infinitely more about the soul. And that's why, if we're going to win this election, we need to care about this as well. Okay, so I, as I wrap this thing up, I just want to say joyfully to you, right, that, that it is an important thing for us to choose to make a difference rather than a point. It's an important thing for us to live courageously and joyfully, 
It's an important thing for us to reckon our identity in Jesus and Jesus alone, to care for the hurting, and to pray for our leaders. And over Lake, what I'd love to do is, why don't we just ask Jesus for the courage to live like that? Bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to say thank you that you are the one who has loved us. You are the one who has cared for us. You're the one who has pursued us. You are the one who has showed us what it is that we are to pursue, that we're to pursue your kingdom and your righteousness and then all these other things that we worry about and stress about, that they will be added to us. But Jesus, we just confess that, that without your help, that, that we're lost in all of this. It is so easy for us to sink in the latest news cycle. And so Jesus, would you be with us now? Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Fill us with your courage. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with your perspective so that we would be confident and joyful. So that we would spend these next four years making a difference and caring for the hurting. And right now, we do pray for our leaders. We do pray for your Holy Spirit to impact and, and to move, to, to help and to bless, but also to give wisdom and guidance. We pray all these things knowing that you're right here with us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.